You can find this morning's reading on page 1017, 1017 of the Bibles in front of you. It's Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I would tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him, and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay, or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. 
They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. I'll keep the, uh, the, the Bible open and um, perhaps turn to the, uh, the outline on the back of the morning service sheet. And if you've, um, you can probably just glance across the page from the, the Bible, uh, it's page 1017. Um, and you, if you were here last week, you'll have heard how Jesus um, appears on the scene in Jerusalem and he turfs out the money changers at the temple precincts, and that obviously created quite a stir in first century Jerusalem. Because here is a man acting like some kind of Old Testament prophet with a kind of divine mandate. But that, of course, is a conclusion that the religious establishment has got a vested interest in not coming to. So we have three incidents this morning that we're uh, looking at. We have, as you can see, the headings in uh, the Bible and in the outline. There's the authority of Jesus is questioned, then the parable of the tenants, and then the question about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, all in their way result in Jesus' opponents becoming more amazed, 12.17, and more opposed to him, 12.12, as Jesus gradually and uh, and more and more uh, reveals his true identity. So let's have a look at the first episode, the authority of Jesus questioned. Well, when Richard Branson uh, launched his airline, Virgin Atlantic, he faced some quite dirty tricks from British Airways. Now, the people who run British Airways are not stupid. It's a very successful airline, and the guys who run it know their market very well. Their opposition to Branson was not based on reason. Branson was selling, apparently uh, and reputedly, a very good service at a very good price, and without the risk of the planes coming down mid-Atlantic. If you're my age, you remember the Russian airline used to be called Aeroflot, um, but if you change the last letter to a P, you get aeroflot because too many of them crashed. Well, the British Airways boys could see that it was a very good product, perhaps even better than theirs. Their opposition was not based on a reasoned, objective assessment, which is the best service, but rather on a purely a selfish one. How can we stop this guy cutting into our market share and damaging our profitability? They wanted to save their position in the world of international aviation. Doubtless other established airlines, normally BA's rivals, also came to share their opposition to this new young rival upstart. And it's a frequent feature in history, not least in first century Israel. Here you have three groups who made up the ruling council, which is called the Sanhedrin. There were the chief priests, who were Sadducees, 
they tended to be liberal theologically and they tended to suck up to the, the authorities, the Romans. Then there's the teachers of the law who could have been either but were predominantly Pharisees. They tended to be religiously conservative and they were very kind of opposed to Roman occupation. And, they t and then there are the elders who can be both plus other people as well. They're the kind of ruling establishment. And they turn up um, in force to question this new young rival upstart, 1127. By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, was Jesus of Nazareth claiming to be a prophet, doing it off his own back, or are they saying to him, are you claiming divine authority? Which is what I think they're thinking, because it's implied in their question. Who gave you authority to do this? Now Jesus had no recognised training, no commission, and yet he's behaving at least like an Old Testament prophet, maybe even someone with messianic aspirations. The establishment knew of his miracles performed up in the Galilee. Now Jesus didn't go around saying, hey folks, you know, God here, I've turned up on earth. No, that would have uh, invited immediate stoning if he'd done that, because that would have been blasphemous. What he does is this. He does things that the expected Messiah was expected to do. The healing miracles are an obvious example. And as time went on, he gradually revealed more and more of who he was. Because the kind of Messiah that he was, though found in the Old Testament, wasn't quite what the religious establishment were expecting they had largely only drawn from one stream of thought in the Old Testament. They hadn't put the different streams together to make up the whole picture. So their expectation was at best partial. So as he goes through his public ministry, he gradually makes things clearer. In this situation, uh, he poses them a question, which is a challenge to their authority as religious leaders. He asks them, 1129, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Well, if they say it's from heaven, then why didn't they believe him? And by implication, why don't they believe in the one that John spoke about, namely Jesus. And if they say, from men, then the crowd would turn against them, because everyone recognised that John had been a genuine prophet. So, they duck it. They say they don't know. Well, they're not being straight, are they? The reality of the situation was that they felt that their position was challenged by both John the Baptist and Jesus. And although they may have 
had private thoughts that these two may well be from God. They don't admit that if they want to hold on to their religious monopoly. John the Baptist was so clearly genuine. He had no axe to grind, no personal advancement or any kind at all. His message struck a real chord with the people and they turned out, you know, they legged it from Jerusalem, about 30 kilometers to the Jordan, to hear him and to be baptized by him for repentance. And Jesus too, not only struck a ring of truth with his message, but his character. You know, nobody could find fault with him. I mean, his miracles, I mean, even these guys, you know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they never questioned that he did these miracles. They weren't stupid. They would have looked for any reason not to, but the conclusion that they had to come to was that these were supernatural events, miraculously supernatural events. They were perverse to ascribe it to a malign influence, the devil rather than a benign one to God. And then there was his teaching. He spoke as one with authority. He had this ring of truth about his teaching. It resonated with the people. They, they kind of instinctively knew it was true. And there are his fulfillment of Old Testament predictions about the Messiah. Numerous. So how could any genuine religious teacher or leader of Israel at the time, with that Old Testament knowledge, not make the obvious deduction that John was the Elijah figure preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Well, they preferred not to entertain that possibility, and not for intellectual reasons, but out of sheer prejudice. So truth becomes a casualty as they seek to save face by not admitting that John the Baptist acted on divine authority. A number of years ago, on my table at Christianity Explained, there was once something of a rather sobering silence after we'd seen the trilemma of the person of Jesus. You know, the mad, bad, or God options. Because it seemed to me as if there'd been a moment of revelation for many of them. That their old previous view that had saved them from any further inquiry, namely that, well, Jesus was obviously a significant moral and spiritual teacher, um, he was just um, a good man, that that had just been removed. Because on any examination of what we know of Jesus, whether from the Gospels or whether from the half a dozen references to him in other ancient writings which aren't Christian, um, there really is no mileage in the thought that he was a great human being, a great religious teacher. Because when you read it, the guy's either, you know, the kind of claims he's making are so... Um, the kind of claims that a megalomaniac would make. You wouldn't think he was kind of sane. You may even think that he's kind of gathering this crowd um, as some kind of uh, some kind of con man. 
though he doesn't seem to appear to profit by it all. Now you have to rule out the mad and the bad and you have to rule out that uh, he's just a human being because um, he doesn't behave like any other human being. So you're left with the conclusion, uncomfortable as it may seem, that this is in fact a divine visitor. And I think in that particular occasion, the reason why people wisely paused was because as your kind of um, convenient barrier to explore further has been removed, that you are exposed, that you risk having to surrender your personal autonomy to this figure. And you may not have realised that before. Well, next there's the parable of the tenants, verses uh, 1 to 12 of chapter 12. It's such an easy parable to understand that even the religious leaders understand it. In fact, it is Jesus' way of answering the original question, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority? Now, in the first century Galilee, the area which had been conquered by the Romans and before them the Greeks, um, was largely owned by foreigners, by Greek and Roman families. And they had large estates, often growing grapes and olives. And the tenant farmers, who were the Jews who worked it, paid their rent in kind to the agent who came to collect on behalf of the absentee landowners. Throughout much of Israel's history, um, they had been thought of as the Lord's vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, for example, which uh, I'll read it to you, uh, it's page 689 if you wanted to look at it. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of around 700 BC. And this is what he is inspired, this is his song. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more, could I have, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? That was the 7th century BC. And now, in this passage, in the 1st century AD, similarly, God could have written that and said that to them. They'd not shown gratitude for all that he'd done by obedience. In fact, when God sent prophets, they'd ignored them, they'd beaten them up, and they even killed them. Now Jesus is claiming that the owner of the vineyard, God, has sent him, Jesus, his son, but the tenants, the religious leaders, they will kill him, thinking that if they killed the only heir, they will become the owners because in their law 
they could take over the ownerless property. Now what will God do to them for killing his son? Let's go back to Isaiah and uh, he says this, Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And that's exactly what happened in 586 BC. The Babylonians completely destroyed Jerusalem and they carted off many of its leading figures like Daniel into exile in Babylon. And that's what, you know, people don't learn. History repeats itself, has to, nobody listens. That, um, that's what happened in the first century. Because 40 years after Jesus gave this warning, what happened? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. The Jews had revolted. And what that meant was, that was God's way of saying, no, the people of God are no longer one particular ethnic religious group. No, they have had their chance. They can, Jews from amongst them can still be part of the people of God, but he's creating a new people of God, which is truly international and drawn from every ethnic group of the world. They now become the people of God. Well, it shouldn't have come as a great surprise to them, because as I've shown, that, um, you know, for you know, really 500 years before, more than that actually, more like a thousand years before, they have been warned that this is going to happen. And in a quote from Psalm 118 about a stone that wasn't quite the right shape for the walls of Solomon's temple, that that particular stone turned out to be just the right shape to be the capstone in the porch at the entrance to the temple. 12.12, 12.12, let us know, uh, let, well, that particular verse lets us know that they, the religious leaders, knew what Jesus was saying. They knew, it says, that he had spoken against them. And by implication, they must have realised what he was claiming for himself. And as Jesus made his identity clearer, so their opposition becomes stronger. So what do we take away from this parable? What lessons last for us? Well, I think there are at least four. The first is that God is incredibly kind. He lavished great privileges upon his people Israel. The country that they lived in was the best in the region. It was the most fertile. And he gave it to them. And he's given them again and again. He's given it back to them. Because they've lost it under the Babylonians and yet they got it back. Secondly, that God is incredibly patient and long-suffering. He put up with loads and loads of ingratitude and even direct rebellion for centuries before he acted. 
And we see that his son was to be his final messenger. No greater one was ever to come. And the treatment meted out to him determined the fate of the Jews as the people of God. And that's a reminder that our reaction to Jesus affects our eternal destiny. If we airbrush him out of our life now, he grants us our wish and we're airbrushed out of his for eternity, which is a truly awful thought, unless, of course, we knew how he can rescue us through his death on the cross and his resurrection to eternal life. And fourthly, what's significant, perhaps, is that no one can plead ignorance. The son in this story of the parable of the tenants is killed not because he isn't recognised, but because he is recognised. They know who he's claiming to be, and that's why they want to get rid of him. And that recognition was not met with a welcome embrace and the consequential long-term benefit, but a prejudicial, short-sighted rejection in a desire to preserve the status quo, to preserve their prized autonomy. They did not want to surrender that. Incredibly proud. And that's two occasions when their will has overridden their mind. They preferred to hang on to what they've got rather than recognise Jesus. And lastly, the paying of taxes to Caesar, 12, 13 to 17. Again, you have an unholy alliance. The Pharisees, who were, if you kind of put it um, on a kind of right-left spectrum, you would have the Herodians, who were politically um, suckers up to the Romans, hence they had their king Herod, who wasn't, he was half-Jew, he was a Jumean, and he... Uh, they, they supported him, and they were a pretty kind of immoral bunch. Um, then you have the Sadducees, who were the religious, well, religious liberals, really. They only recognised the first five books of the Bible, and they particularly sucked up to the Romans. Then you have the Pharisees on the other side, who um, were more uh, numerous and were more popular with the people. They were, they were more ordinary people. The Sadducees were aristocrats. And that the, the, the Pharisees were um, the, the religious lot. And then you have the zealots, they're not featured here. They're the ones who, they're the kind of uh, Jewish terrorists against the Romans. And so what we have here is we have unlikely um, allies. We have the Pharisees, the religious formalists who kept a distance from the Roman authorities. And they had the Herodians who colluded with the Romans and shared much of their shameful lifestyle. In the case of taxes, the Pharisees would have resented paying, whereas the Herodians would have supported the payment. Again, it's, is it not interesting that whereas truth, in integrity, um, and giving way to peer group pressure have been to the fore in their behaviour, that it's these characteristics which they recognise 
uh, they recognize the opposing virtues to their, to their own weaknesses in Jesus. In 12.14, they, they say, teacher, and they are sucking up to him, they're flattering him, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity, whereas, of course, they're not. You aren't swayed by men, whereas, of course, they are. Um, the, the Sadducees were very unpopular, and they, uh, they maintained their position very delicately. They were very fearful of the crowds. And even the Pharisees, there were 6,000 of them, they were not always popular because their, their legalism was unpopular with the people. And uh, they say, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. The Pharisees were fantastic at kind of, of working out ways in which you could do the opposite of what the Bible said and yet think yourself you were obeying it because you, you were advantaged by it. And he acts, Jesus, without fear or favour. He doesn't fear the people, whereas they were afraid of the crowd, 12-12. And he acts without favour. He doesn't seek to curry favour uh, with the uh, religious establishment, whether it's Jewish or Roman. They were out, of course, to trap him when they put the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Have you noticed in political interviews that the interviewer will often ask quite a number of gentle questions, and just as the kind of politician thinks this is going well, you know, puts in the jugular one. And that's what they do with Jesus here. Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? If he says yes... He will offend the crowd. If he says no, he'll offend the Romans. Either way, he'll be less trouble for the Jewish, religious and political authorities. But Jesus' reply reveals that this is not one of those kind of yes-no questions. The denarius, which was a labourer's day wage, was a Roman coin, and on one side they had the bust of the Emperor Tiberius at that time, and then around the circumference an inscription, an abbreviated inscription, but uh, in English it would read Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, supreme ruler. And uh, Jesus' answer was simple. He says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. In other words, he's saying there need, no, there need not be a conflict between church and state. Jesus doesn't expect his people to be living in a theocracy where it's all wonderfully perfect under God. He recognises they live in a mixed economy world, as it were. And he, and he, um, he does recognise that the state, the government, has a vital role to play. We know from Romans 13, for example, that the maintaining of law and order and the preventing of injustice and anarchy are good things. So we should pay our, our rulers that we might enjoy um, a quiet life and grow in godliness and holiness. And we pray for ideal conditions for the gospel to spread and for it to grow and for us to grow in the likeness of Jesus. 
And it's very difficult for that to happen if you have a situation of anarchy and lawlessness. But the state's role is limited. The state, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a rule by just a kind of ruling clique, a few, or whether it's a democracy, should never usurp the place of God. So for us, we must never allow the government to become totalitarian. It has an important role to play, but it has a limited role to play. A limited role under the plans and purposes of God, which is why we must use our votes in elections. And even if that is difficult because of the rather limited choice that we're presented with, that is all the more reason why Christian people should be involved in the major political parties and maybe become councillors, maybe become MPs. It is not difficult. Some of you here are quite capable of being MPs. So what Jesus, though, has done in giving this answer is not to get drawn into a sterile polarisation of pro-Rome or anti-Rome, but recognise the limited role of Roman government and the great provision of what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman Empire, and their fantastic network of roads and administration, that that is worth paying for. It is right to pay taxes for that. But that it is limited, and they should not, as in the case of Augustus, proclaim himself divine and be rather totalitarian with regard to what people can think and do and practice and worship. So, as we close, perhaps the key thing to take away from this is, was the opposition to Jesus reasonable? Or was it led by people who didn't want to recognise that a greater one has come? Was it more volitional rather than intellectual? More a battle for our will and the control of our lives than of our mind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, most of us here will have experienced the wrestling in our minds to uh, follow your way or follow our way. And we know that we've sometimes in the past will have put up rather weak uh, defences just to try and fend you off. And whether it's, whether it's embarking upon the Christian life or whether it's uh, living through and wrestling with the, the battles and temptations which come, we pray that we might uh, be people who are humble, humble enough to learn, humble enough to follow your wiser ways than our ways. Amen.